welcome to Back from the Abyss. I'm Dr. Craig Heacock. First, a quick announcement. The Psychedelic Practitioner Immersive Training filled quickly, so we've added another. And this will be May 3rd through 7th, also in Lyons, Colorado, just north of Boulder. I'll be co-facilitating there. Should be a really great training with two ketamine experientials and lots of shared wisdom. I'll put a link to it in the show notes. Second, I learned a cool new medical word this week, and I realized that I, in fact, have this neurological issue. The word is aphantasia, A-P-H-A-N-T-A-S-I-A, and it means the inability to visualize. About 3% of the population has it, and when those of us with aphantasia close our eyes and we try to imagine a sunset or our child's face or the details of our bedroom, we see basically nothing. A grainy, dark, obscured nothingness. The movie screen of our brain is grayed out and basically useless. And this has been a huge revelation for me. It explains so much. Like, why, for example, I've never been able to visualize how things fit together, especially three-dimensionally. I can't really remember faces or places in any detail until I actually see them and re-experience them. I do have visual memories, sort of, but They're more contextual, narrative, auditory, somatic, but not really visual. And who knew that most people can actually pull up vivid, fully formed images of people and places and things? Wow! I always thought that when people said they could do this, they were exaggerating, that they were speaking more in metaphor, not actual fact. Another weird neurological fact about me, I can't smell skunks. This genetic anomaly is shared by only one in a thousand people, So lucky us. Okay, let's do this episode. Today I sit down with Dr. Will Vanderveer, a psychiatrist and head of the Integrative Psychiatry Institute in Colorado and co-host of the podcast Higher Practice. We look at what is working and what's not working in psychiatry, what we're excited about, what we're concerned about, and what we wish other docs and clinicians knew. This is a wide-ranging and super interesting discussion, and I think there's something in here for all of you, and I'm really excited to share it. I'm here today with Will Vanderveer, and uh, this is such a treat. And first of all, Will, thank you for driving up here. It's great to be here. Yeah. I always record these in person. It's kind of like Joe Rogan. You got to come to me. No, actually, I was very happy to drive to you. I love Boulder. And then you offered to drive up here, so that was super sweet. And we'll be able to go get lunch afterwards. I'm really excited for two reasons. I'm excited for you listeners because Will has a ton of expertise, and he's thought a lot about what's going on in psychiatry. And I think, well, you and I have a lot of um, overlapping interests and critiques and hopes and dreams for psychiatry. And I'm also so excited because uh, I have not seen you in like five years. Crazy. I know. And we met at the Korea Ketamine Conference in California. And I met you and I thought, we are going to be really good friends. And we hung out for the weekend. We went running together. And I thought, "I'm, I'm making a new, really dear friend. And then... Life got in the way, and you started your stuff, and new wife, and all the amazing things you're doing, and I'm raising my kids, and, and now five years has passed, and yeah, what the heck? <laughs> our, our girls are much older now than uh, yeah. <laughs> than back then. I know, but what's so sweet when you first walked in today? Like, oh, there's Will. 
it's, I mean, it's really cool, like the energy people can have, like the moment you were here, like, oh, mm. I remember why I was so fond of you. So, yeah, same. It's great to see you. Yeah, welcome. It feels back. like yesterday that we had, took that run and, and you blew me away. I had to walk <laughs> home, basically. <laughs> I haven't yeah. forgot that part yeah. of it. <laughs> yeah, the running's what I do. Okay. It's kind of my thing. It is my thing. Um, why don't we? Uh, I was thinking we would start kind of at the you know, the 40,000 foot kind of um, airplane view of psychiatry and then go in on some specific topics. But a first topic, and this is something that in your podcast, Higher Practice, that you guys um, investigate, and I think Back from the Abyss is also really all about this. And um, so that would be, what is the field of psychiatry not getting right? Mm -hmm. Well, there's a way of talking about it that sums it up. There's really only two problems with traditional psychiatry. One is the diagnostic method and the other is a treatment method. <laughs> <laughs> other than that, everything's going pretty well for psychiatry. <laughs> <laughs> so, All right, well, there we go. <laughs> That's it, folks. Uh, we'll be back in two weeks uh, with another guest. <laughs> Oh, it's it's too easy to you know pay, take pot shots at a um, a field that has really struggled for I, for identity. I think for mm -hmm. many years. And I think a field you and I love. Yeah, I, I mean, mean, we fell in love with this. We we dedicated our lives to this. So, um, what in general um, do you feel? And I, I want to talk to you about what psychiatry is getting right, but. You know, when you say, why don't we go in on um, diagnosis? Because there's a lot of critique of the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, and I've talked about it on this podcast. But in general, what do you see are the main problems with the way we think about diagnosis and psychiatry? I think the biggest problem is a phenomenological approach, meaning that we're, you know, it's like when you're putting the blind people trying to describe the elephant by putting their hands on the elephant and like, oh, it's it's long and skinny and curved is, you know, over here. And then it's, you know, kind of uh, stinky back here at the other end. Like, it's not, you're not describing what's actually going on mm -hmm. for many people. And the approach, this surface, you know, symptom checklist is the diagnosis approach fails to look at the causes of what the complexity of a human being and how that person got into that difficult spot with what they're dealing with. So that's one piece. And then the other one that kind of irks me about it is that there's so much overlap between different categories and of symptoms. And there's also overlap of what works for what. So, I think it's it doesn't take a rocket scientist to to wonder like is there a root uh is there a common pathway underneath these presentations that we call different things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've often thought in recent years that you know the DSM has I don't know hundreds of diagnoses, but it seems like in my practice I use like five diagnoses. And I've often thought could we distill the DSM down to just and I'll just propose, like, in my mind, like, OCD is a thing, for sure. Right. Um, bipolar disorder, particularly, yeah, I, I think bipolar disorder is a thing. Schizophrenia is a complicated, heterogeneous thing, but it's a thing. Mm -hmm. um, and addiction's a thing. And anxiety as a syndrome is a thing. 
and depression as a syndrome is a thing. And that's kind of it. Yeah. I, I feel like if, if there were, you know, my DSM, it would be that. And mm-hmm. I can, granted, I'm a lumper, not a splitter, but it really seems like you can put almost the whole DSM into very few things. I agree. And then the question becomes, where does trauma fit into or overlap with some of these? Uh, I don't carry the view that a person experiences trauma and then they get schizophrenia in a, in a traditional schizophrenia type presentation. But I've definitely seen psychotic uh, responses to trauma. Um, I've seen OCD-like symptoms come from, in part or in whole, from trauma, traumatic experiences, depression, anxiety. So it's one of those things where it's trauma has become part of the conversation in psychiatry and much more so than it used to be outside of traditional PTSD diagnosis on the checklist. But it's definitely not, um, it's very nuanced how trauma interacts with these things that you were talking about, these categories. It's not like, oh, trauma does, trauma is the answer to all of the questions. Mm -hmm. It's not the case. Yeah. It's like trauma is, is this sort of animating, um, modifying chi or something that flows through to these these different psychiatric states, and it can can make them worse, can make them harder to treat. It, it's not always there, but it's often a factor. Right. And I'm always struck by how many people we treat have meaningful trauma, but they don't have PTSD. Like if you look at DSM PTSD criteria, they don't have that. Right. But they have. You know, chronic dissociative numbing, or they have you know serious attachment problems, which you know attachment is very poorly captured in DSM. And to me, that seems like one of the most core things that we work with in psychiatry. And yet, it's not. It, you know, there's no real diagnosis for that. Rea- reactive right. attachment disorder is really a childhood diagnosis. Absolutely, and it would also extend into addiction presentations, right? And you know what. What caused the pain that the person wants to escape from? Mm-hmm. You said mm-hmm. something uh, on the last episode of your podcast, Higher Practice, which I loved. Um, I was walking home from work last night, and when you said it, I stopped and I said, oh my gosh, that's so beautiful. And I rewound it three times. <laughs> I thought, okay, I have to ask Will that today. And you said, quote, we misdiagnose spiritual illness as depression. Yeah, say more about that. I think that, I mean, when we're talking about the DSM, we don't see much in the way of attention to spiritual health as a part of mental health. I don't think it should be put under the umbrella of mental health. Um, I'm not sure if mental health should be under the umbrella of spiritual health, but they do seem to have overlap and distinct elements to them. Um, When I talk about spiritual health, I'm talking about connection, mostly connection to yourself, connection to other, connection to community, connection to the planet, the universe. Uh, People have different names for that, but I think that in the modern condition that we're in, disconnections are hugely um, predictive of what we traditionally call mental illness. And that's also not, we don't really have in psychiatry a good way to talk about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I so often think in, in terms of its connection realm, I like that connection is, is really spirituality. 
that when I'm evaluating people and working with people, I'm always thinking of Freud's thing, you know, that love and work, work and love. And that's really about connection. You know, Absolutely. And uh, so many p- people who I see who have depression, they do, they have the syndrome of depression, but what they really have is uh, no work, no love or toxic work and toxic love. <laughs> right, right. That, like that's what's making them ill. And they're thinking, oh, maybe I need Effexor, or should I take mushrooms? And I'm thinking, well, maybe you should work or do find some purpose. Or and yeah, again, there are, maybe our treatments can help them along that. But Well, and that's another aspect of spiritual health is you're knowing who you are and living a life that's aligned with your priorities with your values. I don't mean values in a religious sense, but what's important to you. Mm-hmm. And and it's so true. I mean, I treated so many people over the decades as a psychiatrist who either didn't have meaningful work, didn't or it was misaligned or they didn't know who they wanted to be or what their career should be to feel fulfilled or like you said wanted antidepressants and they were in a miserable marriage. And we end up talking about, well, it kind of looks like you're going to have to face this. And and then, you know, and some people do that. And they, and this is one of the kind of koans for me about practicing psychiatry is who who faces the pain and, and gathers in the resources to do that and makes the journey to the abyss and back. Mm-hmm. And who doesn't? Mm-hmm. It's very interesting. Yeah. I've been so struck by... Uh, on the podcast, when I listen to people's stories about what was healing, because that's always a big question for people, you know, tell me your healing path. It so often comes down to connection. into here talking about psychotherapy i think what's so lacking in psychiatry right now is psychotherapy and you know so many psychiatrists oh you know i don't have time or i don't get i do med checks or but you know in my mind uh if you're not using well first of all any psychiatrist who's talking to people is is doing therapy whether they, they think they are or not they're just doing bad therapy but you know the the power of connection of therapy i mean that that is the special sauce for a lot of people. Absolutely. I agree 100%. I started my practice in the early 2000s, committed to doing therapy with everybody. And, you know, I, I had the privilege of being able to do that from the beginning. And a lot of psychiatrists don't, you know, and they go and take jobs where they can try to rapidly pay down their student loans and see 40 people a day and you know, have thousands of people under their care. And it's just very disturbing. So, yeah. It seems like that kind of care, it's like the budget airlines. Like, maybe it's going to get you there. (laughs) It's cheaper, but it's like, really, it's, it's not cheaper. Like, it takes a huge toll. Yeah. Yeah. In the Integrative Psychiatry Institute that you run um, and in your trainings, how does therapy fit in with that? You know, I know you work with psychiatrists and psych nurse practitioners and PAs around all sorts of aspects of integrative psychiatry. I want to talk more about that in a minute, but specifically, you know, how do you see psychotherapy as needing to be part of you know, good psychiatry or integrative psychiatry? Well, I think it's critical. And 
when we teach people at the Institute in our integrative psychiatry program, we have an integrative psychiatry program. We also have a psychedelic assisted therapy program. So in the integrative psychiatry program, the nurse practitioners and physicians and PAs and so forth learn a map of where we think about the attention of the practitioner should be. And inside the map, I'll share it with you. You can put it in the show notes if you want or something, but at the middle of the concentric circle is spirituality. So the spiritual being um, and the health of that person. Um, I think that we put that at the center because issues related to soul illness or spiritual illness are our core. And ordinary psychotherapy, speaking from my own personal experience of being in good therapy for decades, I still go every other week. I love it. I'm a huge fan of therapy. Um, My ordinary consciousness therapy didn't penetrate to depths of my own injuries that I needed to get to in order to get well. So I think that ordinary therapy works fantastic for almost everybody. And then there are people like me who have deeper levels of dissociation or trauma that I'm not sure I would ever be able to get to without going into more uh, facilitated therapy or or journey space or mm. um, ayahuasca ceremony or so forth. So, so spirituality is at the, at the center, uh, and then we go in, and then the next ring out from there is the mind, which of course we're working with thoughts and identity and beliefs, and that's all the realm of psychotherapy as well. And then we outside that we have the body, and then beyond that we have a lifestyle. So, the body is where we teach the integrative sort of functional medicine type techniques gut brain, you know, inflammation markers, all that. And then lifestyle medicine is kind of the work of um, looking at sleep and relationship quality and um, exercise and diet and all the things that are important around behaviors, addictions, so forth. Mm -hmm. So psychotherapy would relate to any of these different layers of healing that people need to go through. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've often wondered, wondered when I see... Um, or when I listen to your podcast or when I think about integrative psychiatry, I wonder, am I an integrative psychiatrist? <laughs> I think I am, but you, you can tell me because I, cause, um, and you know, I, I've joked when I emailed you about this episode, I said, let's talk about good psychiatry versus integrative psychiatry. <laughs> I mean, in my mind, I think good psychiatry, I'll speak to good psychiatry. I think good psychiatry, you know, you're spending maybe, um, you know, four to 6% of the, your clinical minutes talking about meds. You know, I've actually I've often <laughs> had people come in, they'll leave, they'll say, Dr. H, we didn't even talk about my medicines. I'm like, yeah, yeah they're fine. <laughs> that's, that's not the thing that I feel, at least for me, when I'm trying to do good psychiatry, I spend most of my time, well, the number one thing I talk about is sleep. I often mm-hmm. feel like I'm a sleep doc. So I'm just, I am a true believer that sleep is the foundation of, all health. And if people aren't sleeping well, I just feel like it's like trying to build a house on a crumbling foundation, like nothing's going to happen. 100%. And then I'd say I spend a ton of time talking about coping strategies and healthy versus unhealthy. Um, and really, and also relationships. Like a lot of times people are like, why do we spend so much time talking about my marriage? You know, I said, because that is such a factor in how you're going to be in the world. Mm-hmm. So tell me about integrative psychiatry and 
then, then maybe I'll have a sense of if that's what I'm doing or if I'm faking it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that I'll tell a story to illustrate the point. When I was a young psychiatrist and I got very discouraged because I was using uh, therapy and medications and I was learning to meditate and then I started talking about that with my patients and I didn't know what I was doing, but I was broadening my horizons. Um, but I, I was working with this one uh, person who had terrible generalized anxiety, panic attacks, uh, couldn't travel, couldn't leave the house very easily, wanted to start a business, wanted to date this particular girl that he had his eyes on. And we did CBT for a year, once a week, and I prescribed him an SSRI and a as-needed benzodiazepine. So I was following all the rules. I was, you know, doing my board certification thing, and he... Um, only got about 50% better over the course of a year of treatment. It's pretty intensive treatment. He had invested a lot of time and energy into it. And during that time, I was getting very discouraged, and I started despairing about psychiatry, and I quit psychiatry, actually. And this was more than 15 years ago. And I had the good fortune to run into him uh, just randomly in Boulder, and he had the generosity to tap me on the shoulder and say, hey, um, thanks for the therapy. I got to know myself a little better than medications. Not so much. I wanted to let you know that I went and got tested for celiac disease. And when I stopped eating wheat, my anxiety melted away. And then I tapered off my medications. This is all after I had left town because mm-hmm. I was in a Buddhist retreat for like a year. Uh, and still no anxiety after stopping the medications. So for me, it was a, a huge wake-up call around, I mean, I of course, in medical school, we were taught that there were medical causes of mental illness, right? And, you know, you think about thyroid disease or you think about vitamin, vitamin D wasn't really a thing in med school, but we learned about it later, right? And mm-hmm. now it's sort of common practice. But there are these sort of very specific medical root causes that we know about. And I think a good psychiatrist is going to get a CBC and a TSH and the things that we were taught to do. But it was not on my map at all that the gut could have such a big impact on anxiety and sleep. interested in this idea of root causes because a lot of patients come in talking about that because you know people are on the internet a lot and they're reading about meds and some people have got kind of done a deep dive into psychiatry critique and podcasts. I have people come in and they'll say, you know, I'm willing to do meds, but meds don't get to the root causes of psychiatric illness. I love this discussion. I want to have it with you because here's kind of what I think, but again, I wonder you've thought about this a lot is kind of going back to my um, purported DSM that you know, in Craig's DSM with of like five diagnoses, that those five-ish diagnoses have some very real genetic basis. They run in families. You know, the monozygotic twin studies show that there's serious genetic basis. Um, and also, surprise, surprise, they're 50% heritable environmental, or, you know, genetic environmental. 
But then there's this whole other huge basket of people who come to us with depression and anxiety who are spiritually empty, who are disconnected, who are demoralized, who are vitamin D deficient, who have celiac, who um, have chronic low-grade autoimmune. And so uh, so it's, it, it, I kind of envision it like two baskets when I'm evaluating people. Like, are you kind of, are you in this sort of genetic illness basket that you inherited uh, genes that predisposed you to illness and then now you use too much THC, THC or you were abused or, and that made it flourish and, and occur? Or are you in this other bigger basket of, you know, <laughs> what I think we call major depressive disorder, generalized anxiety disorder, which in my mind are just BS diagnoses for you have anxiety or depression. We don't know what that is. Right. Right. I agree. I think the the vulnerability is very important to pay attention to. It, it ver- it's so variable from one person to the next as far as what the component is of that. Um, so obviously a good family history will help you with that. But there's there's also the question of like what – are there ways that we can uh, try to support the person to have – the lowest level of expression of that genetic material versus the higher level. And it goes back to everything you were talking about around relationships, optimization and alignment and sort of reducing the level of friction is one way to think about it in a person's life. Like, are they, are they going with the flow of what their, I don't want to say destiny because it has a woo woo quality, but who they're meant to be. Um, If they're, meant to be gay, but they're living a different life, for example, there's a lot of friction in that. Mm-hmm. Um, and someone who's living a, using a career that sucks for them, that's not the right fit for them. Um, people who wanted to be artists, but the values in the family they grew up in didn't support that. You know, so many different examples of that. Yeah. Just to pivot a little bit, but I think this is related to this sort of huge basket of things that we call your major depression or generalized anxiety, but uh, is much more complicated and has a root cause. And, and that's hormones. Mm-hmm. I'm really, really interested in hormones and mental health. And um, ha- took a course on that a few years ago. And I'm always seeking out podcasts and articles about that. But uh, it seems like psychiatrists are not on board with that. Because when, you know, I've talked with psychiatrist colleagues that I've talked about putting women on HRT and doing testosterone, and they're often like, really? You're doing HRT? And I'll say, well, yeah, because oftentimes the primary care doc won't. I used to, I had so many phone calls early on with primary care docs, say, hey, would you start HRT? And this woman, no, that's not indicated, that's dangerous, breast cancer. Um, And I'm saying, well, psychiatrically, I think it's really important. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I just got so much kickback from so many people that oftentimes I do it. And, Mm -hmm. um, and often with really good results. Um, but what about you as an integrative psychiatrist and, you know, thinking about root causes and how do you think about hormones and, uh, HRT and testosterone replacement and how that fits in, in the bigger picture? That's a great question. I got really excited about hormones about 15 years ago and started like you getting educated on how do you do these protocols and, signed up a few guinea pigs in my practice (laughs) (laughs) and bless their hearts. I mean, it was, they put up with me making a lot of mistakes and trial and error, you know, and learning. And, um, I, so I guess 
to me, it sort of breaks into three categories. I think about testosterone in men. Obviously, there's other hormones like DHEA and things we could talk about. But And then for women, again, we're talking about broad categories. There's um, disturbances in cycle for teens and you know young women in their early 20s and so forth. And then you have menopause, which to me, menopause is uh, of the three categories that I just outlined is the one where it's the biggest target for big benefit from hormone replacement. And so I agree with you. There's a, there's a zeitgeist around fear of using uh, estrogen and progesterone based on this WHI study that um, had a lot of flaws in it. And we don't need to go down that rabbit hole right now, but it scared a lot of people. It scared a lot of people who could benefit from hormones, and it also scared a lot of prescribers. So uh, using bioidentical hormones and starting them at the right time and following the right protocols, I think can be done very safely for a lot of people. And also uh, just from what I've seen with menopausal women getting the estrogen and the progesterone in the right ratios at the right time of the cycle is a huge game changer. I've seen pseudo dementia from people who were had no estrogen in their body. Yeah, I see that a lot. Incredible. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you see depression and you see anxiety. Um, you see insomnia with not enough progesterone. I mean, it's a huge tool. It's a huge tool. Yeah. yeah. Even thinking, you know, women have two to three times as much clinically significant depression and, and anxiety as men. And that's multifactorial, but clearly hormones are a huge part of that. And yeah. all the times in a woman's life when, when her hormones are... Um, swinging, if you will, like those are bad times. <laughs> Especially when the swings are jagged and they're not physiologic. <laughs> right, that's exactly, yeah, yeah. Yeah. How do you think about ADD diagnosis and treatment in an integrative psychiatry perspective? Hmm. That's a great question. So obviously stimulants are incredibly potent tools. They work really well for a lot of people and even pro drugs like Vyvanse can be incredibly helpful. We sometimes see people who have, you know, been on a stimulant for since they were six and they come in because they're, you know, they want to try something different. They want to know what, what are the options here? What, what can help me taper off the stimulant? And, you know, I'm 35 years old now. Do I still need a stimulant? I've been on it for 30 years. And so then we start putting into play the things that, we could use to support that. Um, a lot of things. And I guess the the spoiler alert is that if you've been on a stimulant for 30 years, then the non-stimulant approaches tend to feel pretty mild, <laughs> pretty weak compared to like high dose Adderall for 30 yeah. years. Yeah. Uh, but there are, there's a constellation of tools that can be put into play. Neurofeedback is one of them. Um, there's a multi-ingredient formula that has been studied and shown to be pretty effective for ADHD in children. We've, I think you and I both use that mm-hmm. time to time. Uh, fish oil can be useful. Um, obviously, brain training of, of different kinds. Cerebellar balance training is interesting. Uh, John Rady is a guy out of Harvard who popularized that, did studies on that. Anyway, there, there are things that can be done. Yeah, or even sleep hygiene. I'm just amazed... Yeah. How many times um, high school, college age, young people come into me, and you know they may or may not have bona fide ADD, but when you talk to them about sleep, 
listen yeah. to their, and I think, okay, how can you even focus? Right. How does your brain work? And a lot of times they think it's because they're so sleep deprived and then they take 30 of Adderall, which is basically like blast them into sort of like forced attention. Um, but, and then I think oftentimes what happens to people get in this cycle where the stimulant quote unquote stops working. And so they're on more, but really if you talk, if you really do a deep dive on sleep, you know, they're getting four hours, five and a half hours. Mm-hmm. And I wouldn't be surprised, especially if the deep sleep was really compromised because there's so much Absolutely. stimulant in the system. So I just wonder how many people are walking around on stimulants who, if, if we could do like polysomnography on them, we would see, oh my gosh, your sleep architecture is so wrecked. No yeah. wonder you need Adderall. Absolutely. I, I have you. Are you using wearable? Like I, I see, it looks like an aura ring on your finger. Yeah, I have one on mine too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I get a little obsessive about the numbers. I see. I <laughs> uh, it's a problem that I <laughs> yeah. still working on in my mind. Do you use wearables in your practice? I, I do ask people. Again, I try um, people who I think it's not going to be an economic burden. But you know, I've encouraged some of my people to get an aura ring. It's really great when they can just bring in their phone. Because first of all, we're all horrible reporters on ourselves. Mm-hmm. But reporters on it, there's tons of data that shows when, you know, even overnight sleep studies, when they ask people what time, how long did it take you to fall asleep, how many awakenings? No, people are off by a shocking amount. So mm-hmm. in a lot of ways, to ask people about their sleep is like to ask them about, you know, their third grade spelling test, you know, they just, you know, but the something like Aura, when you can look at, oh, wow, you go to bed every night somewhere between 9 p.m. and 1 a.m. Okay. <laughs> that, that is helpful data. Uh, that's so funny. <laughs> oh, your HRV is 10. Hmm. Right. Are you drinking a lot? Like, are you taking Adderall at 7 p.m.? Like, what is, what is that? Yeah. No, I'm a big fan of that. Um, yeah, I joke with my kids a lot, and I've talked about this in the podcast, that a lot of times I come home from work, I'm walking home from work, and I think, I'm a sleep and weed duck. <laughs> Mostly what I talk about with people is trying to help them sleep better and trying to find ways to have them use less or you know, less destabilizing weed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in Colorado, right? <laughs> Rocky Mountain High. <laughs> no. Yeah. Let's shift to talk about ketamine. You do ketamine training at the in a Integrative Institute. You and I met at the Korea Ketamine uh, Workshop years ago. You and I have done a lot of it. I think we were kind of early adopters. And just curious, I've uh, done a lot of um, exploration of ketamine on this podcast. But let's just start about, let's go basic. Let's start dosing and root. Mm-hmm. How do you think about ketamine dosing and root, whether IM or IV or oral? I think they all have a role and each, each has its own, you know, benefit and drawback. We mostly do IV at our clinic in Boulder. And I think the big reason for that is we wanted to focus on people with more long-term severe depression in our practice. I think that it's going to be hard to determine if there really are differences between route of administration and efficacy. Um, my sense, and this is just a sense, but 
the sense is that route of administration doesn't matter as much as people think it does. But nevertheless, the, the evidence for racemic ketamine, for generic ketamine, really is more IV evidence than it is sublingual or intramuscular, um, for what it's worth. So it is much more hassle and setup to provide IV ketamine than even IM ketamine, mm-hmm. um, and sublingual is much easier. So I just think that uh, with the population we serve, the IV route makes the most sense. Mm-hmm. But I think that Therapists using sublingual tablets in their practices can be done safely, and it can be very helpful for people. So, um, of course, we have to be careful about supplies and refills and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, have you noticed this in your practice? And again, I try to be really careful about observer bias and expectation bias, because I know I'm in solo private practice, that's a thing. <laughs> One of my attendings at Brown would always say, if you go into solo par- private practice, you're going to get crazy. You're going to believe your own crazy ideas. So you better watch that. And so I think about that all the time. So this is a chance for me to bounce off you. But having done now um, around 3,000 IM and IVs, um, it seems to me that dose matters a lot. And that people, to get the full benefit, the full antidepressant benefit of ketamine, people need to go fully dissociative. They need to dissolve. They need to, you know, whether you want to call that K-hole, losing touch with the room, losing your body. And I've heard from many people of my patients, when, let's say, they had a uh, sub-dissociative treatment, they might say, you know, I like that better. That was much more pleasant. You know, because I have everybody text me updates after their treatments, but they'll say it didn't work nearly as well. And I've even had people say the fully dissociative treatments are a lot scarier, but they they give me such, I get so much more benefit from them. But then I wonder about, and I, I talked about this in the fishbowl episode last year, that could that be that ketamine is such a powerful active placebo that people are thinking, okay, I got so K-hold on that, like that's really going to help me. So mm-hmm. I don't know, but so I'm super eager to see what 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 you're discovering in your clinic in Boulder that if in fact... You know, because again, I think this is a key point for a lot of reasons. One is that most ketamine clinics in the country, my sense is they start at 0.5 milligram per kilogram, which is not much of a dissociative treatment. And they might slowly work up to a fully dissociative, but that's a long process where typically I try to get people there within two treatments. Interesting. Yeah. A little bit faster than us, but we also start at 0.5 and work our way up. And part of it is, you know, that database on the 0.5 is sort of a minimum viable dose, if you will. But then our folks are not psychonauts who like to K-Hall. And so, you know, it's sort of, I think it's important to, I've had, I don't want to say train wreck situations, but I've had um, negative experiences that I've given patients where the do- where we increase the dose too quickly. Mm-hmm. And so that is part of it too, is uh, when someone is psychedelic naive and they are really deeply suffering and they really don't want to go into a K-hole, then uh, there is that kind of gradual ramp for them. But but the other thing, I think you're right that there is a big expectancy bias there. There's a big kind of, I need to go somewhere or I need to be obliterated in, in order to have the, the beneficial experience. Mm-hmm. I think it's both. Yeah, yeah, maybe both. So I, I know those studies are happening now. It'd be so interesting to see. And even 
again, this is just in my patients, and it, there's so many confounding factors, but it seems to me when people are, have sub these are people, because like you, most of my patients that I see for ketamine are long haul, like chronic treatment-resistant bipolar disorder. They're mm-hmm. on you know, multiple meds. They're doing ketamine to keep themselves you know, going. That they're getting an, like an extra week of benefit from the fully dissociative versus sub-dissociative. But again, that could be, there's so many psychological factors that might play into that. And uh, I think this is a really key question because, you know, those deeper treatments are, are scarier for some people. Mm-hmm. I mean, some people are just always amazed how different it, it is that you can give some people milligram per kilogram of ketamine IV and they open their eyes at the end and they say, that was so peaceful and beautiful. And I was on a, like a lazy river and it was, just, you know, and other people are like, <laughs> shit, what did you do to me? What, what was that? What happened? <laughs> you know, and I think like same person and even like time to time so i think you know music plays a role expectation plays a role i mean there's a lot of things but it is shockingly different shockingly variable i yeah. agree 100 percent. yeah um what do you think about or how do you think about combining therapy with ketamine because you know, that's a big controversy a lot of people in the country can just go to strip mall get ketamine infused and leave and then other, you know, the extreme other example of that would be like doing ketamine lozenges for two or three hours one-on-one with a trauma therapist and doing a, you know, a deep dive, whether it's somatic or, or some other modality, and then everything in between. To me, the opportunity of having your default mode network altered and, you know, your psychology opened up is, is too precious to waste by not having the therapist there. Um, and the therapist might not say anything, might just hold space the whole time. But sometimes there are other things that happen like, um, emergence phenomena and, um, memory recovery, you know, all kinds of things happen in the room that somatic processing happens in the room. So I, I come from the view and this, I think this is mostly from my own health journey that who we are, um, a lot of who we are gets laid down in the very early parts of our childhood that are pre-verbal. And what I like about ketamine and other psychedelic therapy is that you gain access to these early places that are really hard to get to in ordinary consciousness in talk therapy, let's say, or even in my case, a lot of somatic therapy in ordinary consciousness. Mm. Uh, so I, I, I think it's sad that, that people are not being um, offered therapy as a part of the strip mall, you know, IV ketamine, it's, it's disappointing because so much of what we're holding inside of ourselves that needs to be released or integrated, um, you can go through an IV ketamine experience or you could take LSD at Burning Man and you could not integrate the thing, Mm -hmm. you know? So yeah, I, I, I'm pretty dogmatic about that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we, we don't offer IV ketamine without therapy in mm-hmm. a clinic. Have you noticed this though? Like I see, um, typically what I do is I sit with people for 15 to 20 minutes as they, they're coming out. And then some people will schedule a session right after me or with me. Some people go to their EMR, EMDR therapist later, mm-hmm. but it seems like, especially with the higher doses of IV, it's again, so shockingly different. Some people come out and they're just flattened and they, they are kind of befuddled and have little mm-hmm. to say. Other times people take off their eye shade and just amazing, powerful stuff comes out, mm-hmm. you know, and like, I've never told you this or, um, 
and it's again so unpredictable. And I think having someone there to witness and be ready. Um, but I've also realized that I, at least with these higher doses, I need to give people the expectation that they they may be able to process or may not, and that's okay. Mm-hmm. Because I've had people say, "Oh, it wasn't a successful session because we couldn't really explore stuff afterwards." But I feel a lot better. I'm like you know, good. Right. You know, it's. I think for some people. Yeah, that post-session processing is really crucial. And some people are just kind of waylaid by ketamine and their post-session processing might be finally walking the dog the next day, which they haven't done in weeks. And they get out and the sun's coming up and they think, wow, this is good. Yeah. This is really good. I had forgotten. Absolutely. It takes so many different forms. And and then I'm glad you brought up the piece about uh, we didn't have, we didn't process and so therefore it wasn't a good session because there's so much entrainment that happens when we have people under our care for a long time and there's a certain sort of uh procedural memory that develops around what a a good session was or and and also there can be like this um quality of leaving oneself to take care of us as the doctor or the therapist that they sometimes some people i've worked with have this chronic uh kind of habitual need to please the the person they're interacting with socially. And if that person's not getting um, taken care of, then they don't feel okay inside of their own skin. Mm-hmm. So that can come up too, which is interesting and, yeah. and, and a great opportunity, right, for mm-hmm. therapy. think of uh, patient selection and evaluation for ketamine who do you see as you know ideal responders the kind of people that are sitting across from you and you think okay this is almost surely going to be great because you know you see literature quotes of you know 70 75 percent significant response rate with ketamine but my sense in my practice is it's in the right population it's 95 98 and then for other people it might be 40 Right, but it's, it really matters who the person is and what's happening. Our our outcome data is in the seventy to seventy five percent across all the different people with all the different conditions. So whether it's you know PTSD or depression or all these labels we talked about earlier, mm-hmm. um, but I think the people who seem to be most likely to get into that ninety five percent category are folks who have had long term uh, recalcitrant conditions that haven't responded to the usual things. So we don't refuse uh, people. We don't say, well, you got to go fail, you know, 10 different treatments to get ketamine treatment. But I do think that the people who are coming in and that's the first thing that they try are a little less likely to get the benefit than people who are further down the road with different treatment failures. Mm -hmm. I wonder too, in your practice, I agree with you. My most sort of chronically um, depressed people who've had, you know, countless episodes, severe episodes, hospitalizations, early onset. And again, those are more often than not people in the bipolar spectrum. Mm -hmm. It seems like the home run responders, you know, 90% plus are people with relapsing bipolar, you know, or mixed states 
um, that it almost always works. Again, as long as they don't have sleep apnea or big drug problems. But if, if they have that, like that is super hopeful. Is that your sense too? Absolutely, yeah. We, we treat um, some bipolar depression, maybe not as much as, as you're treating here. Um, but for those people with the chronic uh, depression, yeah, definitely. And also, I think it seems like the folks who have a common or who, who, who are dealing with um, the combination of trauma and depression also mm-hmm. seems like a, a sweet spot for ketamine. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I was thinking um, depressive states that come out of trauma. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And it just yeah, it's and that's and those are so hard to treat. Those you know very hard. Those are not typically med responsive, hard to treat with therapy. Maybe somatic therapy is better, but but with ketamine, you have someone with PTSD and they're getting suicidally depressed. Like most always, ketamine can buy them some relief. I'm curious if you have different protocols for different these different presentations. In our work, it seems like. People with significant trauma need more time in between ketamine sessions for integration or digesting their experience. And with a chronic depression presentation, uh, oftentimes we'll kind of do this twice a week for three weeks, kind of in IMH protocol. Mm -hmm. I would say my folks with uh, serious PTSD, with depression out of PTSD, they typically do ketamine yeah, less frequently, probably only a few times a year. And it's very often linked to anniversaries. So hmm. trauma anniversaries, seasonal changes. Of, you know, I'm sure you see that where there's like a smell to the air or a color to the light that, boom, takes people back to the awful thing that happened in the fall 10 years ago. So I do a lot of academy treatments scheduled right before trauma anniversaries. Hmm. Um, but my, in my kind of, chronically relapsing bipolar depressed sort of folks a lot of them do either monthly maintenance or they do monthly through the fall winter so i have a whole i have a whole crew that does monthly uh, that have again really severe and these are often people who've had ect mm-hmm. they've had 15 hospitalizations and they're you know, almost always they they do pretty darn well with the maintenance um and then my other folks who come in seasonally but yeah you're right i think the trauma folks they come in much more sporadically. They, the treatments often sort of br- yeah, bring up a lot of stuff that needs to be processed, and it's, it's very different for them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what are your thoughts on this whole um, phenomenon of kind of telemedicine with ketamine? You know, that's sweeping the nation <laughs> where you can, where you can uh, get your little packet of lozenges and log onto your computer and do your ketamine-assisted psychotherapy on your laptop? Well, I think there's a spectrum of quality and uh, attention to detail and attention to safety in terms of what's out there and what's what's being offered. And obviously, they're on the blatant end of the spectrum. You've got, you know, pill mills where there's just unlimited refills and, you know, not any oversight and medical backup or anything. I, I just, to me, it's sad that the relational um, opportunity is missed there. But on the other hand, you have this whole argument for access. And sometimes I think about, you know, if, what if we had a world where access was no longer an issue? And then how, what, what would, how would we design 
the spectrums of offerings for ketamine therapy? What percentage of people would be doing home work if it was, if, if anything was accessible to anybody, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, obviously that's a fantasy and that's never going to be the case probably in American medicine, but I, I think, um, I think there's a role for it. I think there's a way that people, certain people get access to healing that they would not be able to get to. And I'm almost cringing saying that as, you know, with my sort of conservative medical background and my concerns about safety and so forth. And someone taking a lozenge at home and then getting in their car and going somewhere and hurting somebody or themselves. But I'm also painfully aware of how difficult it is. I mean, I just read an article yesterday that Colorado ranks 51st in the United States for mental health in adults. And most of it breaks down into access to care. Mm. And I was like, holy cow, that's shocking, right? Yeah, that's terrible. So I think access issues are real. some sort of short answer questions. I thought it would be fun. I did this with Jeremy Dubin in the addiction episode where, you know, sort of top three things that we think on different topics. And so one of those, and uh, I was wondering for both of us, what are three things we wish all psychiatrists knew or understood? So why don't you go first? Oh, wow. What a great question. I'm going to take it back to where you spoke about Freud and love and work. And it's so funny to hear you say that because that is on the front of my mind every day. Me like too. that's one of my favorite, maybe the only thing <laughs> about Freud that I retained or, or think um, really hit the nail on the head. So uh, within that, we're, we, we were talking about quality of relationships and the existential meaning that you get from spending your time, your one finite resource, right? Of like, what am I going to do with my life? What, how, how do I create a life that's meaningful? So remembering that is probably number one for me. Uh, what's on your list at number one? Um, first thing I said was I would want all psychiatrists to know that dissociation mimics depression, that so much of what we call treatment resistant depression is, is based in trauma. And so the person looks depressed but we try all these depression meds and they don't work at all. And we think, oh, you have treatment-resistant depression. Like, no, they are, they are kind of numb and restricted affect and anhedonic and have sleep problems. They, they meet all the Siggy caps, you know, yes. MDD criteria because they have trauma. And, you know, I've missed this for years. It's only really, sadly, I think been in the last five years that I've really woken up to this. Um, so that'd be the first one. I just want to say hallelujah to that. I mean, that is so important. I was going to go a version of that, which for me is that, and I spoke to this about my own experience, that these dissociative elements, which you, maybe another way to say it is that the disconnections inside of ourselves with between the different parts that operate in, you know, a reasonably healthy neurotic 
21st century American male. <laughs> <laughs> That's quite a category. Is there's that a, you, there's is a that lot you of us. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot. Yes. Uh, the the level of um, or the the the, the procedure the the personality really the way of relating to reality that's automatic and we're unaware of is does come from early experiences and and the interaction of vulnerabilities with our environment and we forget as psychiatrists in our effort to focus on symptom reduction that these early formative experiences really do matter in terms of the quality of our life and what we believe is possible for our lives. So, so I just wanted to underline and say a different way what you were just saying. Mm, yeah. Good. Because my next one, uh, what I wish psychiatrists knew, I wish all psychiatrists really knew and understood countertransference. Uh, originally I had put down here that uh, I wish psychiatrists would own psychotherapy and, and know that they're doing it even when they're not. But more specifically, all these people who are quote unquote, just doing med checks, serious transferential and counter-transference things are happening, including counter-transference sadism and acting out. And But so many psychiatrists, I think, don't own that. And so they're inadvertently hurting their patients. And they don't even realize it. And that's just been one of the one of the things I'm most grateful for about my training is we had so much psychodynamic training. And and I've talked a lot about this in the podcast, this idea that, you know, we are gonna hurt people. And so consciously or unconsciously, often unconsciously, and if you are not aware of that, like if you're not in touch with your countertransference, you're gonna hurt even more people and you won't even know it. And that's huge. One hundred percent agree there. I think my third one goes to this idea that root causes exist beyond anything we were taught and beyond anything we can even imagine. And I would encourage the psychiatrists who may be listening to think about that. Think about the possibilities that are out there that you've never heard of that could be like, let's say, mycotoxin exposure from living in a moldy building or a, a, a tick bite that you got that had Lyme disease in it. These are real phenomena that most of us didn't hear about in med school. Mm-hmm. And, and and there's still a bunch more that we don't even know yet. Yeah, I like that a lot. My third one, what psychiatrists should know, I said, um, don't fit, excuse me, don't forget about clozapine. Um, because a lot of psychiatrists don't even prescribe it. They don't want to deal with the blood draws and the clozapine monitoring stuff. But I mean, I think of there being maybe three kind of miracle treatments in psychiatry. And I would put clozapine on those that when you have somebody with severe treatment resistant bipolar disorder or schizoaffective in your office, like you literally can change their life if, if they're a clozapine responder. And it's just, in fact, it was one of the um, motivations for my podcast. Episode one was a woman who was going to die. Her bipolar disorder was going to kill her. And, and finally, I convinced her to go on clozapine, and it changed everything. Wow. Uh, okay, next one. I like these three things. <laughs> this is like your three favorite hair bands. No, <laughs> we're not going to do that. It's like we're doing some Reddit thread here. <laughs> uh, what are three things we wish our, our fellow non-psychiatric physicians knew or understood? You want to start or should I? If you're ready, go ahead. Okay. I wrote mine down. <laughs> uh, I said, number one, uh, SSRIs are not antidepressants. Uh, 
you know, SSRIs do work for some kinds of depression, but primarily they're anti-neuroticism meds, they're anti-obsessional meds, you know, they work, they're anti-OCD meds, they work very well for certain types of things, but they are not primarily antidepressants, and primary care does not understand that, because I get a lot of people with quote-unquote treatment-resistant depression who've been on four SSRIs, and I think, and I often tell them, I say, okay, you've had no depression treatment. You've had anti-obsessional treatment, anti-neuroticism treatment, again, which secondarily can help with some depressive states. So that would be the first one. I think I'll go with, and and I could be wrong, it's possible that primary care docs know this more than I think they know it, but that psychotherapy compared with medications shows relatively equal outcomes for mild to moderate conditions like uh, anxiety and depression conditions, and that the long-term benefits of an investment in, say, 12 sessions of CBT is huge uh, compared to doing 12 weeks of Celexa or, or an SSRI. Mm-hmm. So that's a big one, is, is misunderstanding the efficacy of psychotherapy for mild to moderate conditions. Yeah, I love that. Uh, see, the second thing I said that I, I would wish non-psychiatric physicians would know or understand is that trauma is the great imitator. That so much of what shows up in primary care that looks like a hundred different things is trauma. And again, it took me a long time to fully get that. I mean, I think I'm still, that's still unfolding in my practice, but clearly tons of physicians don't get that. Yeah, I, I tend to think about trauma as like the version wasn't syphilis what we were taught as the great mimicker mm-hmm. in med school mm-hmm. now it's trauma yeah. <laughs> it's not syphilis anymore although syphilis could be traumatic it could. <laughs> <laughs> but trauma can't cause syphilis per se no. by itself yeah yeah no. um so right and then i would and this one is maybe a little on the subtle subtler level but adverse childhood experiences and the the ten item questionnaire, which is so wonderful to have that tool, that we shouldn't misinterpret that score as fully encapsulating a person's childhood. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the The notion that is also a limitation in in the DSM that there's going to be a capital T trauma, an index trauma, major life event like a a rape or a car accident or something that people who don't have that are not traumatized people is huge. So knowing that these kinds of little T traumas or the um, misattunements, um, chronic, you know, sadism or relationship problems, they're not going to show up on that. You're not, you know, you might have an A score of zero and still have significant issues that are trauma based. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's such a good point. My third one, uh, not for non-psychiatric physicians, is stimulants and benzos can cause serious harm. You know, it's reminded me of a podcast episode I heard last week. It was on the Carlat Psychiatry Report. And I think, did you hear this one about Adderall and Xanax? It was either, it was either Rhode Island, I think it was Rhode Island. They looked at all prescriptions. Everybody who gets meds in Rhode Island. I think it was one5 percent of people were on a stimulant and a benzo and by far the most common combination was Adderall Xanax Wow! which is in my mind you're that's the most addictive stimulant and the most addictive benzo 
And it's, you know, as I tell my patients, like being on those is like jamming your foot on the accelerator and one of the brake. But I get so many people who, again, psychiatrists do this too, for sure. But I get a ton of people from primary care who are on benzos and stimulants. And I think, you know, they work fast, they're powerful. But the word is not out, I think, among our psychiatric or non-psychiatric colleagues, especially, I think with stimulants, I think a lot of people understand the benzos, but... I see so many people come to me on crazy doses of Adderall and Vyvanse. I just think, who did? Like, I want to call that mm-hmm. doc and say, you should take 30 milligrams of Adderall right now. Like, you should try that because you would see that like, you're prescribing them you know, three quarters of a gram of cocaine. Like you, mm-hmm. You're missing something important. I agree. Totally. Okay. I, I have one more. Oh, yeah, go. So, and this goes out to the physicians who are maybe not enjoying their careers, but they see psychedelic medicine coming and they think, oh, here's, I'll just jump on this and this will be great, you know? And um, there's a, so so this is for the non-psychiatric physicians that there there's, I think there's a pervasive sense that psychotherapy is not really psychotherapy. It's just hanging out with people and you're not actually doing something that's clinically uh, powerful and necessary and real and produces real results. And so there's a sense that, well, I'll take a psychopharmacology course and now I'm a psychiatrist, or I know, I know as much as a psychiatrist knows from Mm. going and taking a brief, uh, retraining course. And it's scary to me because there, there, there's a way that, and I think ketamine, um, has in some ways become this kind of bridge that's a little fuzzy for people who um, haven't been trained in psychotherapy, uh, but and but they understand that they ketamine off-label in mental health conditions can be very effective. And so it's just a, a trend that I'm noticing is this, this discounting of psychotherapy. And maybe this goes to what you were saying earlier about psychiatry disowning psychotherapy. Mm-hmm. And so the other physicians are thinking, well, you know, it's psychiatrists don't do it. So why do I need to do it Yeah, yeah. <laughs> or learn how to do it? Mm-hmm. I often think of myself and, and you as a psychiatrist too. I think, I think of myself as a soccer goalie. I'm the last line of defense. If people have broken past primary care and the therapists and EMDR, and then they come and it's just this onslaught. Cause usually by the time it gets to us, it's bad. But I was thinking about this the other day as I'm back there, like taking these blast shots of really difficult cases, um, when I'm able to stop the ball, which is most of the time, um, the reason I can is not because of my knowledge of psychopharmacology. It's because of my psychotherapy training, Mm -hmm. you know, that the patients who are sort of the equivalent of, you know, the really scary $10 million striker who's broken loose and is blasting it. Like when, when I stop that, I think I often think back to my therapy supervisors at Brown and I, th- I say to them, thank you. Because <laughs> the hardest stuff, again, re- relating to what I talked about a few minutes ago, the hardest stuff is often the transferential counter-transference stuff that is just ripping our guts out and it's making us act in ways that we normally wouldn't. And it's bringing up rage responses and sadism responses and abandonment stuff. And it's making us, it's burning us out, it's sucking our soul. And Yet, if you have the ability to remain in that mindful therapist stance, 
it's it's almost like the soccer goal. He's like, oh, I see what's coming. I know what he's going to do. He's going to break here, here, and then he's do that little juke move, and then he's going to try to flip it over my left. And I, I know what that is, mm-hmm. and I'm ready. You know, it's like you, you see like the meta view of what's happening, which is what therapy is. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it allows you to step back and just like, ah, this pattern. Mm-hmm. This, is the, this is the dad pattern. Yes. I'm becoming dad. And, yeah. Right, and not getting lost in that entrainment or that, that trance of repetition. Mm-hmm. Of the you know the compulsion to repeat um, until the spell is broken. What about this question of how you and I handle grief and vicarious trauma from our work? How about you? Uh, not well. <laughs> <laughs> Me either. It's uh, so I would fist bump, fist bump you if I could. Um, you too far away. Yes, I, I've, that's been, yeah, I've not handled it well at all. Yeah, it's, you know, we talk about it lightly sometimes, like, oh, it's, you know, occupational hazard and this and that, but, you know, holding space for very, um, for deep suffering is just, it's just hard, you know, and it, it it demands a level of, um, I don't know, the, the phrase self-care seems kind of trite, you know, Mm -hmm. like, Oh, you know, go put on a nice relaxing, spa music and mm-hmm. chill out or whatever, but there's... it has to go deeper. Yeah. <laughs> and here's it has why, to go deeper. It has to go deeper. This reminds me of what you said a few minutes ago about you needing to go deeper. I feel just like weighed down and crushed by all the suicides and the murders and the grief and the suffering and the trauma. And I love my work. I feel so grateful to do my work. And I feel like it's been increasingly just crushing me. And it's really actually been through this podcast that I've come to realize that I have like serious psycho-spiritual wounding and issues because I've been, to, I've done all sorts of stuff to try to make it better, running and talk therapy and acupuncture and a lot of, a lot of stuff. It helps a little bit. Uh, and then I realized I need to go deeper. So I did some therapy specifically targeting the, uh, the, the trauma of doing what we do. And it was so transformative. Mm. Like it, it got to layers that I hadn't been to. Mm. And um, one of the lessons was, because I, I told the therapist, I said, I need an exorcism. I need, I need uh, the pain drained out of me. I need, I need the pus released. I need the pressure off me. I need, I feel like I'm going to explode. I think, like, can you like, and she said, mm, it's not going to go like that. <laughs> she said, can you come up with another intention? I said, well, can we just get it out? It has to get out. She said, mm, I don't know how that, if it's going to go like that. But in just in brief, what it showed me was that the pressure's coming. Like as she kept saying, you can't fight this. You can't resist it. Like I'm like a little fish that's taken from the top of the ocean to the bottom being crushed by 10,000 PSI. And she's like, and the core, the, what I need to do is fill up with love, like fill up with, let people take care of me, fill up with 10,000 PSI inside of me 
so I can mm. equilibrate and and kind of be a Zen soccer goalie. <laughs> just like <laughs> some shots are going to get past me, but like I was just, I did actually imagine that at one point during the session, like yeah, people are coming, but you know, like everyone's with me, like everyone is like inside of me and holding me and protecting me and filling me up. And that was such a profound thing that, you know, what I, I thought I needed a, a trauma exorcism, but what I really needed was a huge infusion of, of love. Mm. Wow. That's beautiful. I love the flip too. You need to fill yourself up with 10,000 PSI. Mm-hmm. Mm. Which was, yeah, which I experienced during it, which was the love of all the people around me and their support, letting them mm. hold me, literally hold me, mm. fill me up. I could feel that as they all just sort of embraced me and, and enclosed me in this like tapestry of like buzzing, silly love, you know? It was, it was amazing. It, it was such, you know, Saj Razvi has said a number of times, you know, the, the only way, the, the effect of trauma therapies all are experiential. You can't talk. You like you have to. You have to go through. You have to, and not just like in a. I think the somatic is the entry to the psycho spiritual, but you have to do it. There's a piece you just mentioned near the end there about grief, and you know when I think about vicarious trauma as a psychiatrist or therapist or firefighter, whoever you are, law enforcement, we don't have a culture that supports healthy grieving at all, at all. You know, there's no, I remember as an intern, you know, house staff in the hospital at Denver General Hospital in the late nineties, people dying all over the place, you know, every night, Um, someone that I was responsible to keep alive died, you know, it happened a lot. And there was no, attention to, okay, well, how are we going to talk about this, what just happened? Or there was not even a conversation about it. You know, I remember coming back to work in the morning to round at 6 a.m. and the bed was empty. And it's like, where's Ms. Jones? Mm. Oh, she died last night. Mm. I mean, so, and those experiences, those, I like to call them failures to grieve, are stacked in our, in our, in our cells. And, I think that that I I have this story in my mind that we as human beings we used to know how to do that and we used to wail and fall on the ground and you know be unable to work unable to talk unable to eat uh, you know we we'd be impacted and we would move energy and uh, it doesn't happen enough and so then you have kind of what you were talking about, the suicides and the murders and the mass murders and the children murdered. And there's no framework to hold that experience. And so, like you said, people then go and have a big experience, whether it's for depression that's masquerading as undigested grief or whatever the thing is, and and boom, there's a volcano. And yeah, it's... and and there's no language or understanding of how to hold that. And so then it becomes, it could become another traumatic event that stacks on top of the stuff that you were trying to address in the first place. So somehow we need to relearn how to grieve 
and to take the time to do that. And it's hard because it feels like this machine gun effect of like, oh, and now there's another thing that I read in the news. Because right in medicine, we don't. I mean, there's there's no time to grieve. There's more patients to see and problems to solve, and it's just most of my suicides I've found out about at work. You know, I find out, and then I just keep seeing patients. Right. You know, my most recent suicide I found out about um, last month. I was actually on vacation on a boat with a friend, and it was so much better to get this awful news. But I was with my dear friend, and we're on a boat. And he just gave me a huge hug, and we just sat there, kind of rocking back and forth on the boat. And he's like, "I love you. This is so hard. I'm sorry." And we just sat there and just looked at the horizon and the boats rocking back and forth. And I thought, "I'm so grateful I got this news here, mm-hmm. so I could just again connect, yeah. be in nature." Because you know, all these other times, and there's been so many. I'm at work, I'm like, "Oh no, not another one." Yeah. yeah. There's yeah. no time. We soldier on. Yeah, there's mm-hmm. right, no time. It's like, okay, who's next? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Maybe a final thing we could look at um, is the the implications of Prop 122, the Natural Medicine Act, which is going to change the Colorado landscape a lot. Mm-hmm. So for listeners who don't remember, this is um, a Colorado proposition that just decriminalized psilocybin, DMT, ibogaine, and mescaline, and will allow for, here in the coming months, um, state-sanctioned use of these substances with therapists. I'm curious, well, what are you hopeful about with 122? What concerns you? Why don't we start with that? Well, first of all, I think decriminalization is so important. And I don't know if that even needs to be said with your audience, but the war on drugs is just a travesty and a catastrophe and a racist policy and so forth and so on. So that part of it I'm really excited about. Um, I am a little concerned about the public perception that when something gets decriminalized, it's perceived as harmless or that nothing bad can happen from, you know, teenagers, you know, using it or um, non-therapeutic uses. But... um, having worked closely with maps and Rick Doblin over many years and his continuing to trumpet the benefits of social use of psychedelics. Of course, there are downsides to that, but I think there are upsides to that too. Um, in terms of supporting a deepening of relationships and intimacy and friendships and partnerships, marriages, um, I worry a little bit about the teenagers and what the perception is going to be because when cannabis went through decrim uh, in Colorado, I my daughter was in in public school where there were a lot of kids uh, all of a sudden using a ton of cannabis that was pretty different from before that happened here. Mm-hmm. So I'm not sure how that's going to play out. I am happy that Colorado passed a bill that is more 
oriented toward therapeutic uses for trained professionals to hold space in, as opposed to the Oregon rule where you're going to be, you just need to be 21 and have a high school diploma and take a short educational course. And now you're a psilocybin guide. Yeah. Yeah. That's a little scary. What do you see as our role as psychiatrists in this kind of post-122 landscape? That's such an interesting question. You know, going into the future when these things, you know, the rules are going to come out in about a year, I think. So we have some time to think about this. But similar to what you were saying about ketamine and Abilify and atypicals, like how much is this going to change where we go with treatment plans? Um, I have a feeling that the people we serve are going to be wanting natural medicines more than they want pharmaceuticals. And so they're going to probably be, you know, wanting to start there rather than starting with something that is more of a, um, suppressive agent. Maybe they want to go towards something that's more of an evocative agent. And, and I think that's one way to talk about the differences between traditional medications and the psychedelic medications. Yeah, I wonder if a big role that we're going to have, I feel like I'm already in this role, is you know, understanding our patients on a deep level so we can help guide them. Mm-hmm. You know, one, is this a good idea or not for you? Two, are you on medicines that are compatible? Are you the kind of person that could come off medicines? Um, are you someone who really needs the crucible holding of a very experienced trauma therapist or are you doing more kind of psychospiritual exploration and you're pretty healthy and you know you could do that with someone who's more of like a sitter right but i could see again because what i think we as psychiatrists are one of the things we're trained in hopefully is to think deeply about people and and understand again just like root causes and genetics and and kind of where they are and sort of this their mental emotional spiritual health and that and not many people have that. Plus we have the medical expertise to hopefully guide people. It's like, this is a potentially a safe way to do these substances, you know, or you know what, because of these factors that you have, you probably should steer away. Yeah. And I think another piece of it is going to be guiding people around when and how often to, mm. to use these tools. There's a phenomenon of kind of overuse of, psychedelics, which is, I wouldn't put it in the category of addiction per se, but there is a um, kind of a missing the point of, of digesting your experience and going back and, you know, throwing another depth charge into the unconscious and (laughs) hoping for the best. (laughs) I just had this image of like how you throw like, like explosives in the water and all the fish pop. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Depth charge. I right. I think you know, for certain people in certain mind, emotional, spiritual states with certain substances, you're essentially doing that. You're just throwing a depth charge in the unconscious, mm-hmm. and yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, um, I think we should wrap up. We got to go eat lunch. <laughs> <laughs> this has been so uh, deeply enjoyable and a uh, long time coming. Same here. Thanks for having me up. It's been great. Yeah. As always, you can reach Chris and me through my website, craigheacockmd.com. We'd love to hear your comments, thoughts, story ideas, 
And to help back from the abyss, share this episode with someone who might find meaning or hope in it. Write us a review on your favorite podcast platform. We'll be back in two weeks.